Another one of the ABC specials, The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau, is about to be seen on television. Yeah, the great white shark is a rare animal, almost an endangered species. So uh, instead of being frightened by great white sharks, we should protect them. Sharks have been, you know, really fundamental to our understanding of health and, and, and well-being. You know, a, a little-known fact is that there have been a number of Nobel Prizes that have been awarded for using... Uh, marine organisms to sort of study and understand things. With COVID, we thought, all right, given the context and given what we know about marine biotechnology, why don't we see uh, if we can pull together some of this marine information to be useful to the COVID effort? Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I am bio. Well, until now, I bet the only story you've heard connecting COVID and the ocean is whether or not officials have opened the local beach. And if so, whether beachgoers have been practicing social distancing measures on the sand. But what if the ocean were more than just a cool and peaceful respite from the global pandemic? What if lurking deep in its depths were the medical answers to end it? Today, you're going to meet an extraordinary entrepreneur in the marine biotechnology space. He's going to tell you about his inspiration to solve COVID-19 while he himself was fighting off the infection in March. He's going to talk about the medicinal marvels biotech researchers have discovered while studying sea sponges, lugworms, and horseshoe crabs. Did you know that the Eureka moment that led to the discovery of remdesivir was found in the ocean waters off the Florida coast? Did you know that a breakthrough in the synthesis of DNA came from a bacteria found in the hot springs at Yellowstone National Park? And did you know that some of the seminal discoveries about the human adaptive immune system came as a result of studying sharks? Well, soon you will. Welcome to the mostly uncharted waters of marine biotechnology. Join me as we travel back to our planet's earliest evolutionary history, when life only existed in water, as we deep dive for buried ocean treasures that can save millions of lives on land. So we are joined by an absolutely fascinating guest today, Dr. Timothy Boulay. This is our 21st episode of the I Am Bio podcast, and Dr. Boulay represents a number of firsts for us. He's our first guest, at least that we know, who has actually contracted COVID-19. And after three miserable weeks, he beat it. He's a California guy at heart. He's our first guest to be recording with us from a flat in France, and uh, Paris to be exact. He's our first guest who earned a medical degree only to leave the practice of medicine to take a job at the World Bank, where he saw an opportunity to make an even bigger contribution to global health. And while he's not our first or even our second guest specializing in one health approaches to fighting disease, he's certainly our first guest seeking to pioneer a new frontier in medicine far from dry land. He moved to France four years ago to start a new company called Emergent Ocean. Inspired by French native son Jacques Cousteau's nomadic spirit, Dr. Boulet went to France 
to make the burgeoning field of marine biotechnology his life's work. And today, it's going to blow your mind with the tantalizing prospect that the answers to COVID-19, and in fact many other medical mysteries, are waiting to be discovered at the bottom of the deep blue sea. Dr. Boulay, welcome to I Am Bio. Thank you. It's good to be here. Extremely flattering introduction. I appreciate that. Let's start off um, by breaking down a few numbers. 70% of the earth is covered by water. 97% of that water is ocean. And 60% of the adult human body consists of water. Life began in the water. And after millions of years of evolution, we had the first vertebrates who who climbed out of the water, uh, the fish, and then from there, if I have my high school science right, uh, we had amphibians and we had reptiles and then we had birds and then we had uh, mammals. So the question is, what do these numbers about the amount of water in not only the ocean, but in our bodies and all of the evolutionary history tell us about um, why it might be? that some of the greatest challenges we face, at least from a medical standpoint of view, can be found in the ocean. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think it's, it's important to remember that me and you and everybody listening is, is two-thirds saltwater. And the reason that we are two-thirds saltwater is because we evolved out of the ocean. And so all of our physiology and anatomy and biochemistry is specific to that place. And for 400 million years, uh, land animals have been carrying around little oceans within them. And so if we as humans, as a species, are interested in improving our health and furthering biomedicine and technology, it makes a lot of sense to look back to this place that we originally came from. Because there were billions of years of independent evolution of these species that we are related to that still exist there. And in some, some ways, they are subject to much harsher environments. And so they have evolved incredibly complex molecules to fight off enemies and to withstand incredible pressures uh, and very cold temperatures, all of things which can have uh, tremendous benefit to human biomedicine. And, and not only do we have similar needs for survival, uh, as you say, to either escape from or fend off predators and to avoid uh, various pathogens and so forth, but we're using the same tools, right? We're using DNA. DNA is DNA and RNA is RNA, whether it's in a frog or one of us. Isn't that right? That's, I mean, that's exactly it. You know? And as our understanding of these fundamental building blocks get better and better, there's more that we can do to, uh, to manipulate them and to use them to create better health benefits for humans, but also for, like, for the environment and for, for conservation. So we're going to get into all that science, but let's, let's learn a little bit more about you. Um, your love of the oceans, I think, dates back to your childhood. Uh, you grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I think you were a, a surfer dude. Is that right? I mean, I was a pretty bad surfer dude. I mean, we <laughs> and, and to be fair, we like we sort of grew up just on the other side of the mountains, closer to, to Napa than to uh, to the beach. But that didn't sort of stop me from going out every weekend and dragging my parents to the beach and going tide pooling. And you know, the thing about Northern California is that it's not like it's not like Southern California beaches, you know? It's not like Baywatch and warm and sunny. It's more like fog and 45-degree temperatures and, like, you know, 
wind coming at your face all the time. So it's like a, a bit of a harsher environment, you know. But yeah, I mean, so much of my youth was spent there on these beaches at, you know, Half Moon Bay or, uh, you know, any place up uh, in Marin and just like, you know, digging around in tide pools, finding crabs and, you know, playing with my, my brothers and my dad. So then you go to med school, you become a doctor, um, which I guess made your parents pretty proud. But you felt a calling to approach health in a more holistic way. So you left the practice of medicine to answer that call. So um, we've talked a little bit about uh, One Health on this program, but what does it mean to you? Instead of it's, it's meant different things to me at different points in my life. You know, as, as a little kid, like I was a bit of a, a funny little kid in the sense that, you know, at Christmas time, instead of uh, like a Nintendo, I'd ask my parents for a massage book or like a Chinese medicine book, you know. And this theme kind of persisted as I as I got older. And I took some time off of medical school, actually, to go to India and study Ayurveda because there's a real link between human health and the environment. And these uh, traditional health approaches like Chinese medicine or Ayurveda, One Health is about bringing together human health and the environment and animal health. And if you are somebody that's grown up in one of these other traditions, this is just like an inherent part of the way that you see the world. Um, but with the molecularization and cellularization of medicine over the past couple hundred years, we've moved away from that. And I think that it's really important to, to return to that. And we're seeing that, you know, we see that in this, this pandemic, um, you know, something that's derived from an, an, an animal disease and it's, it's caused this major impact in human society. So I, I just think that it's really fundamental to understand uh, these connections um, because it will continue to be important in our lives. We had two guests on the podcast who are experts in One Health, including Dr. William Koresh, who actually um, coined the phrase. Uh, his organization of evolutionary virologists persuasively argues that we can expect to see a lot more outbreaks like COVID unless government implements One Health programs to monitor infectious disease hotspots. And they also suggest that we need to do a better job of containing risks at wet markets and rethink how our growing population is causing humans to bulldoze the natural world. They believe One Health planning is our best chance to stop a new era of pandemic threats. But they're concerned that multinational institutions are not very good in this work, with one exception, the World Bank. I got to the World Bank around 2012 and 2011, 2012. And for a number of years, there had been this uh, really fabulous economist, Olga Jonas, uh, who had been leading this effort that they were calling people pathogens in the planet. And they were trying to understand the, the costs, given you know this place of the World Bank, they're a bunch of economists, of pandemic outbreaks and zoonotic disease transmission. And then uh, there was a, a veterinarian that got involved, Francois Legal, French guy, um, who was a very strong advocate of this as well. He grew up in Africa, working with veterinarians, living out in the prairie. And he he really pushed for this as well. And so with his support... Uh, we launched this next phase of One Health work at the bank where we, we wrote this thing we called the One Health Framework, uh, which is an operational framework for how you implement One Health, whether it be in governments or international institutions or at local levels and, and so on. I've seen news reports, people being like, oh, you know, we couldn't have never, we could have never predicted that COVID would have had such massive economic impacts or an infectious disease outbreak could, could have had such massive economic impact. Actually, I think we did. You know, you look at some of these reports that Olga wrote a decade ago and the numbers are there, you know, and the numbers are actually even a bit smaller than what we're currently experiencing because it's so astronomical. 
But people have been thinking about these things for a while. So running the One Health program was only part of your portfolio at the bank. When you took the job in 2012, the bank was run by Bob Zolik, who really cared about the oceans. Two weeks after starting at the World Bank, all of a sudden you find yourself in this ornate executive boardroom where normally heads of state meet. Uh, and you were suddenly running the billion-dollar global partnership for oceans. So how did that happen? Uh, you know, I wasn't running it. I was coordinating parts of it, right? And the, I'll, so to get into the explanation of this. You're not very good at taking more credit than you're, you're due, you know. Well, you, you know, it's like a team effort, right? And uh, the way that this came about is that Bob Zellick uh, had announced this new partnership at uh, The Economist, uh, the magazine. They wanted to commit a billion dollars for ocean partnership and funding. And so they started this thing right around when I got there. And I went to the guy that was the head of it. And I said, hey, you know, I'm like, I've just finished medical school. I'm really interested in these oceans and human health connections. What can I do? And he's like, all right, we'll write a brief and I'll see if it's interesting. And then we'll, uh, we'll consider it. And so I did that. And then he's like, all right, well, you know what? Uh, we'll get to this like in a couple of years. But right now we need to like build up this partnership. So why don't you do that? And one of the first meetings we had, as you said, was in the executive boardroom of the World Bank. And I thought, man, like this is like such a profound moment because here we are in this hall of power discussing ocean conservation and how we can really do something. And this felt like it was like a frame shift to me, you know, that something you know, there's actual money and power behind this and we were going to do something important. And then we started to put the global partnership together and then for various reasons, as these things sometimes do, the, the wheels fell off and it became politically complicated and we, we didn't get it to where we wanted it to be. And it was like a, it was a real lesson for me in how, you know, even the best of intentions can get clogged up with, uh, with politics and with self-interest and then ideas don't actualize and then, and then the world suffers, you know? So it was, uh. It was like both an inspiring moment and like a, a moment of realization and then a disheartening moment. So in any case, eventually you decide um, you're going to leave the World Bank and go start your own company? Yep, that's right. How'd that happen? Some of it was precipitated by uh, experiences that I had, um, you know, that really spoke to my values and what I was trying to do in life. Um, one particularly salient example was I was on a trip. I was working on a, a fishing uh, investment program in West Africa. And we were in um, a West African country and we were going to see a site where sort of fishermen were doing their work. And we started driving into the desert. And I was like, what are we, you know, shouldn't we be going the other direction out of the beach? <laughs> um, you know, it's like it's sandy, but it's like it's not the ocean. Uh, and we got out there, we met these fishermen to see what they were doing. And as far as you could see, we sort of went over a dune. And then as far as you could see, there were uh, shark carcasses that were light out on the, the desert that were being dried out. And they all had their fins cut off. And so they were just like the, the tube of the, the shark corpse. And so we started talking to these guys. And I was like, what, what's going on here? You know? And they said, well, you know, we, we got these sharks off, uh, off these boats offshore. Um, and the implication was that there were Chinese fishing, fishing vessels that had uh, cut the fins off to take them to China. This was uh, a number of years ago when finning was, was more of an issue than it is now. 
And then they had taken the, the rest of the corpses on shore to dry them out to sell them to other countries, you know. And I thought, okay, this is, uh, you know, this is like not something that I directly want to be involved in. And even if the World Bank weren't, you know, directly supporting that project, you know, it was it was close enough to me that this that that made me realize this is not something that I wanted to wanted to be doing. Um, so shortly after that, I, uh, I ejected out and I and I moved to Europe. It's it really is quite amazing that that as recently as that that, that people were not completely outraged by that all of that practice and disgusted by it but it's easy to say it's uh, easy to say when you're living in the US and you're not trying to find how to scratch an existence from the world so you go to France and then you get covid yeah yeah well there was like a <laughs> it wasn't immediate so i came to France because there's a very rich history of marine exploration here and you hinted to that earlier with, with Jacques Cousteau and so on but they've got a lot of really excellent uh, research institutes in marine science. They have really excellent uh, exploration programs. They've got this research vessel that travels around the world. Very enamored by this, right? Um, and there's also a very rich biomedical community in, in Europe that's different than that in the United States. And I thought, well, you know, if, if I can make an impact in this space, you know, it, it would benefit me to, to understand different dimensions of it. And so I came to France looking for that. But you asked about COVID, you know, sort of much like anybody that gets COVID, I suppose, you, you kind of don't know where it, it came from, right? Um, and so I had, uh, you know, the, it was ramping up here, the the potential lockdown. And, you know, you're seeing hospital admissions and you're seeing what's happening in Italy. This must have been, I guess, the end of March when all, or middle beginning of March when this was happening. And so there was a sense that France was about to shut down. It was going to make a change because they're cases were piling up in the hospitals. And I had uh, gone to work that day and I work at a very large startup campus here in France, really cool place. Um, but there's like thousands of people every day in and out of there. And I had, you know, been at cafes a couple days before, you know, having my, uh, you know, having my cafe and my wine and, and whatever else you do in France. And then yeah, Saturday night, I sort of wasn't feeling so hot. And I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe I just had a bit too much red wine last night. Uh, and then, you know, I started to feel a bit warm. And so I checked my temperature and I'm like, you know, I, it's like, what are the, what are the chances that I've got this thing? Like, it's gotta be so infinitesimal. Right. And then sure enough, you know, within like a couple of hours, my temperature had spiked. Um, and then I started getting these body aches. Uh, and then for multiple days, it was this same story. The, the only thing that I could compare it to was, you know, once before I'd had uh, malaria, I was working in, in Rwanda uh, doing some medical work. And it, it felt like that. Yeah, the difference was that malaria sort of goes in peaks and troughs and you sort of feel like fever and chills and up and down. Uh, whereas this was really persistent. Uh, and it just lasted for, for a number of days. You know, I, I felt like I'd been run over by a dump truck. And then, you know, like other people, I lost my sense of smell and my sense of taste um, and had this really long post-viral recovery period. It lasted a couple of weeks. So it was... Um, it was an eye-opening experience because I, it, admittedly, I was one of these people at the beginning. It was like, well, you know, I've seen outbreaks. Um, there's all this media coming out. I mean, this stuff can't be true. You know, it's like I've seen some of this stuff up close. Like, I know about zoonotic disease. Uh, and then, like, as if I were smoted, you know, like, bam, was taken out. I'm like, wow, yeah, well, this is like, it's a good lesson, you know. Um, and it reminded me that I need to be more responsible as a, as a medical professional and somebody that works in this space. Okay, so you recover from COVID-19. Now, 
Let's talk about the intersection of COVID and marine life. One of the companies that I was working on is this company called uh, Emergent Ocean, um, whose purpose is to build living ocean companies. And the idea is to crowd in investment and expertise into these startups that are working in the marine biotech arena. Uh, and that company was due to be incorporated in Switzerland uh, a number of months ago. Um, but because of COVID, we, we couldn't do it. And so um, the other company is uh, it's a, an aquaculture biotechnology company. And we're sort of going full steam ahead with that, but that's uh, that's another story. But um, with COVID, we thought, all right, well, with this, um, given the context and given what we we are we know about marine biotechnology, why don't we see uh, if we can pull together some of this marine information to to be useful to the COVID effort? Um, and so we put together a grant proposal, and we we shopped this thing around, um, and we started reaching out to our network, and we started pulling polling uh, marine scientists about what they knew uh, in terms of uh, antivirals or in terms of tests that might have some utility to COVID or or whatnot. And we found all sorts of stuff, right? Just demonstrating how there is such tremendous value to be derived from these living marine resources for health and well-being. So Gilead has remdesivir. Uh, and it's one of the more promising antivirals that might serve as a therapeutic. What's the marine connection with remdesivir? Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad you asked because remdesivir is uh, is part of a class of compounds called uh, nucleoside analogs, and these work by interfering with uh, viral replication. So, like you think how a virus works, it injects itself into a cell, and then it needs to replicate to you know, create illness in, uh, in an organism. And what these nucleoside analogs do is they prevent this from happening. This class of compounds, nucleoside analogs, uh, were first discovered in a, in a sea sponge. So the context here is that in the early half of the, the 20th century, uh, you know, natural product discovery was still a staple of drug development. Um, and then, you know, over time, for various reasons, this has waned. Um, and so there was a there was a pharmacologist, this guy Werner Bergman, who was uh, living in Florida at the time doing research, and he found this previously undescribed sea sponge um, off the waters of Florida in 1945. And so he took this back to his lab, and he experimented with a sponge and found that it possessed these two remarkable compounds that were previously unknown to science. And these were similar to, but not exactly like, two of the base sugar building blocks of RNA, which is thymidine and uridine. And so he named these two new compounds to reflect this. And so he called them spongouridine and spongothymidine. Um, and that led to the laboratory synthesis of these nucleoside analogs, which were working just exactly as they were in this uh, sea sponge. And there have been many, many compounds of this class that have been used. The first HIV medication, AZT, is a nucleoside analog. There are compounds that are used to treat herpes and used to treat cancer. Um, and then, of course, there's, there's remdesivir, which has potential utility for COVID. So here's what I find fascinating about this. And I'm really interested in the, the functional values of these different compounds, molecules, in something as uh, two species as disparate as sponges and humans, right? So the um, the sponge, I presume, was not worried about contracting herpes, but it, it had a need that for which it evolved the defense 
And that turns out to defend humans in a similar way. Do I have that close to right? Yeah, that's right. And so the sponge wanted to prevent viruses that were threatening it from from replicating? Yeah. So the, you know, the thing about sponges uh, is that they don't move much, you know, like, um, you know, unless you've got one in your hand and you're washing dishes. Well, except SpongeBob does. Well, you're right. Okay. And he's adorable. That's, that's also <laughs> true. Right. But if you're like a, I don't want to say less adorable, you know, run of the mill sea sponge, but a sort of a differently adorable sea sponge uh, that exists in the coastal waters off of Florida, you don't move much. And so these things need to develop defenses uh, because the ocean is just rife with viruses and bacteria and, and all sorts of stuff that is, you know, trying to, to promote its own life cycle. And so in reaction to that, these sort of not moving very much organisms need to develop de- defense mechanisms. Um, and, and this is just one example of that. You find the compounds and then I assume you basically uh, synthesize them. Uh, and isn't that, I mean, so it's, isn't it largely about finding these naturally occurring compounds, seeing what their value is and medicinal value is, and then synthesizing from that point, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. You, you know, it's yeah. like there are some examples where uh, marine organisms need to, to be harvested. Um, or historically, it's, it's, been that, it's been done that way. But we're moving away from that, you know, like uh, the, the, the key example there that people always use is the LAL test, the Limulus amoebocyte lysate test. Um, and this is derived from an amoebocyte that comes out of horseshoe crab blood. I know all about this. Go ahead. OK. Well, do you want to tell the story then? <laughs> yeah. So. So, yes. Um, and, well, now I say I know all about it. Now you'll correct me. But in any case, it's this substance that's harvested from the blood of the horseshoe crab, which is a very prehistoric looking animal, is very, very sensitive to endotoxins. And the biopharmaceutical industry has been using it for a very long time to find these endotoxins that could inadvertently contaminate their equipment and the product. And and so there are companies that go out and they harvest these crabs and they uh, take them into uh, buildings and they put them in conveyor belts and they drain the blood out, um, not all of it, and then they return the horseshoe crabs and they say that nearly all of them survive. I don't know that anyone measures that. Um, but the problem is, uh, and I'm a, uh, an avid birder, there's a bird called the red knot that has the longest migration of any bird in the world and it, it migrates all the way from the tip of Tierra del Fuego all the way up to the Arctic Circle and, and has to find protein all the way up. And as it has for millions of years, and it gets to the places like the beaches of, of Delaware along the Delaware River, just as these horseshoe crabs, as they have forever, come up and deposit their eggs in the sand. And these horseshoe crabs have to be able to eat millions of these eggs so they can finish their journey. So... Many of us have been trying to figure out how to protect the horseshoe crab in order to protect also the red knot. And now there's a synthetic version of, um, of this product. And we're trying to get the industry to switch from the crab blood to the synthetic version. Um, but it's very complicated because a thing called the U.S. Pharmacopeia has to ad- adopt it so that the companies feel safe using it. I get that right. You, I mean, you explained this so much better than I could have. I mean, I should be interviewing <laughs> you. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, that's that nail on the head exactly. It's also fascinating that you can literally go into the water, the commercial zone of a country, find something, and um, take it back to the lab, learn what it can do, and synthesize it, and then 
that country feels like you owe them all kinds of royalties for uh, the use of the product. But um, I, I probably won't wade into those legal waters. But there's there's um, there's a sea worm that can be used in COVID potentially to help oxygenate the blood. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So this is this is cool too. So it's a a French company called uh, Hemarina. It's been around for maybe about a about a decade now. They have done their marine explorations and they found this beach-going lugworm. Uh, the Latin name and the French name is uh, Arenicole, Arenicola marina. And these things breathe through gills like fish, but they, they live on tidal beaches. Uh, and so they end up spending as much time out of the water as, as they do in it. And so these worms have had to adapt to oxygen deprivation, uh, which has been really elegantly accomplished with the specialized hemoglobin, which is the, the blood protein which binds and, and carries oxygen. And human hemoglobin can bind combined four oxygen molecules at a time, whereas this lugworm hemoglobin combined up to 156. So that's like nearly 40 times the oxygen carrying capacity of, of ours, which is, which is like pretty compelling. And so, you know, what these guys are thinking is that, all right, if, you know, COVID patients are having respiratory disease issues, respiratory distress, they can inject them with, uh, with this product to increase the oxygenation of tissues thus picking up the slack for the physiological failure of these underperforming COVID-ridden lungs. Uh, and this works because the increased binding capacity of M101, uh, as well as some other sort of an- anatomical characteristics about this thing, um, it's, you know, it's really quite small. It's about 250 times smaller than a red blood cell, um, suggests that it may be better able to pass through these pneumonia-damaged uh, terminal blood vessels in the lungs where oxygenation takes place. And so... You think, all right, well, this is like a, a great potential therapy for, for COVID or for anybody else that's in respiratory distress. Uh, unfortunately, as, as things often do, uh, it's sort of hung up in uh, clinical testing. And so they got approval here in France, and then that approval was turned off for reasons which like may be political, may not be political. It was uh, reasonably well reported here in, in the French media. Um, and then over the past you know, few weeks, it's kind of died out. You know, it still you know shows promise, and the, this particular compound is is used in, in you know many other ways. It's got other licensed uh, approvals to, to be used, but um, you know it's just an illustration of of something that has come from the marine space, which you know can really be useful to our current situation or you know any other of these uh, sort of health issues that we face. So it sounds like it could also be a great doping compound for running marathons. You know, I didn't say that. <laughs> just, just saying. So that's more about ocean enzymes. And there's some evidence that uh, we found an ocean enzyme that can help with the PCR testing for COVID. It can reduce false negatives. Uh, yeah, maybe. You know, DNA polymerases are enzymes that are used to to synthesize uh, DNA. And the the pathway to developing these started way back in 1969 when uh, scientists discovered a bacteria. Um, which is called Thermus aquaticus, which sort of lives in these extreme environments in uh, Yellowstone National Park around the hot springs. Uh, that was, you know, turned into this DNA polymerase, which is used in PCR polymerase chain reaction, uh, which is something that you use to uh, replicate DNA so you can identify organisms. Uh, and then a couple of decades later, there was this marine biologist at the Woods Hole Institute 
who discovered new strains of bacteria on hydrothermal vent species in the ocean that were similar to the, the bacteria that were on hydrothermal vents in, in Yellowstone. Um, but these could withstand even greater extremes in pressure and temperature and, and lack of oxygen and so on. Um, and they had these like sort of like crazy properties about them, right? And so these, these vent species now can be used in different forms of PCR, um, and they've got some pretty fundamental differences to TAC polymerase, which is currently used and most often used, which is the one that comes from Yellowstone. Um, and these things, you know, they tend to generate fewer coding errors, but they may be a little bit more specific, you know. Um, and as we know, this has like been a big problem with some of these tests is that they're not very specific. Um, and then you have a lot of false positives and false negatives. And so if you had a sort of more specific way of doing this that was run with uh, sort of like sharper enzymes... Um, that could that could really be a value, um, and so the, the best of my knowledge, you know, these enzymes are not currently being used in COVID tests, but they exist. Uh, they're more expensive, and they potentially could be. Another connection: the seminal discoveries about the immune system were made by studying sharks. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so you know, this is like a really an interesting story as well. So sharks, uh, sharks have been you know, really fundamental to our understanding of, uh, of health and, and, and well-being. You know, a, sort of a little known fact is that there have been a number of Nobel Prizes that have been awarded for using uh, marine organisms uh, to sort of study and understand things, you know. I, it's like 12. Like it's a tremendous amount wow. of Nobel Prizes that have been awarded for using uh, marine organisms. So sharks were the first organisms to possess a group of genes that are collectively known as the uh, major histocompatibility complex, or the MHC. And this thing is, is present in all species that evolved after sharks, in, including humans. And so when, when cells become infected with something, with a, a virus or bacteria, some kind of invaders, pathogen, the MHC molecules capture a, a small piece of this little invading microbe, and they put it on their surface. So immune cells come and gobble it up uh, and get rid of that sort of that pathogen that's there. And so they serve as these like little molecular signposts that are invading, invading the body. And so this is, you know, sort of collectively called the adaptive immune system. And we figured all of this out by, by studying sharks because these were like the, the first movers in this space. These were the first guys to have this, you know, since every, every species since sharks has an adaptive immune system. I would think it'd be hard to study sharks. <laughs> well, I mean, they're not exactly like lab mice. Yeah, I suppose that they're a little bit bigger, right? Yeah, and dangerous. Yeah. Oh, but they're so lovable. I mean, they're you know. Have you have you ever been diving with sharks? I have, and at night as well, which is somewhat unsettling. Oh, it's so cool though. I mean, yeah. you know, these things—they're just like, they're just like you know, torpedoes in the water. They're so purpose-built. And they're just so slick. You know, you touch their skin and it's just like the craziest stuff. I mean, this is a whole other story around like biomimicry and bioengineering that's happening using, um, using marine species. There's a, a guy out of Colorado that's creating antibacterial surfaces that are sort of based on um, the understanding of shark skin because shark skin is inherently antibacterial. The, the way that the molecular structure is such that it's like got all these grooves and divots in it. And so the bacteria can't stick on it. And so this guy, he's understood this, and he's like, well, why don't I just start making uh, materials out of this? 
And he's doing that now. And he's using them in like medical instruments. So like things that really shouldn't get bacteria on them, like, like catheters, you know, that are going into really sensitive places and some other things. Um, and he, he calls it, um, you know, it's like shark fin something or other. Uh, the company is called Sharklet. It's really cool. How about uh, marine compounds have a role in, in cancer research as well? I mean, there's all sorts of stuff um, that's come from the ocean that has direct use for, for cancer, tre- cancer treatment. Um, but also in the same story as, uh, as sharks and understanding the immune system, uh, marine uh, species have been used as model, model organisms to understand how, how this works. Um, and some of our fundamental understandings uh, about uh, cancer anatomy and physiology comes from marine animals. Right. So, so cancer, of course, is the explosive, uncontrolled replication of cells, right? And some of these marine uh, species um, living, uh, I've read, living in tight quarters um, need to not have uh, a lot of life uh, crowding the space out. And so they have these compounds that stop this, the cellular replication. I mean, that's yeah. exactly right. You know, it's like if you could... You know, imagine like sort of any kind of like, you know, population dynamic uh, or like sort of species interaction. This is probably happening in the ocean. You know, it's like it's just such a brewing froth. You know, years ago when I was studying for medical school, living in San Francisco, uh, I used to go to this place called the Cliff House, uh, which is this cool restaurant right on the cliffs uh, of Mission Beach. And you look out there and you just, you know, it's often kind of cold and stormy. And you just see these waves bashing on the store, on the on the the beach and the rocks below. And I just used to think, man, like this, this is where life came from. You know, it's like it came from this constant motion and stirring things up. And that's why we have what we have today, you know, because it evolved in this primordial soup that was constantly being mixed around um, and has enabled all of these these sort of mind blowing variations. Well, I I grew up. Um Watching all of the, you know, the first astronauts, the, the first space capsules and the first orbiters and the first moon missions and still love it. And, you know, we're going back to the moon again, apparently, and then on to Mars. But uh, in, in, in the recent couple of decades, I guess, my opinion has been, you know what, before we go figure out what's on Mars, which frankly isn't all that, um, we ought to figure out what's going on on this planet, um, which is all that. And there's so much more we have to learn about Earth than we could ever learn about Mars or the moon, uh, in my view. And, you know, to me, what we what would be just as fascinating as as watching a rocket shoot up in the air and go to the space station would be would be creating the most amazing um, contraptions and vessels to uh, to you know, search th- throughout the ocean and, and discover so much that's there. That's my little speech. So where's your company going to go? What's your, what are your, what are your ambitions and your vision for your company? Oh man, that's a complicated question. So, you know, there's, so there's two companies right now. The one company, the, the one that's sort of helping startups and uh, explore this broader space of biotech. Um, and then the other company is, it's called Biofin Biotechnologies. And it's, it's doing the reverse a little bit, Right. And so instead of taking biotechnology out of the ocean and applying it uh, to the the medical space, we are taking biomedical developments out of human cancer medicine and applying them to aquaculture to uh, improve sustainability and improve fish health 
um, and ultimately, you know, make this a better industry. And, and fundamentally, it's about marine conservation uh, and it's about sort of understanding these connections between human health and the environment. And then it's also, you know, sort of cautiously, a little bit skeptically uh, incorporating technology into this process. But uh, doing it in such a way where you're trying to take the best of technology uh, to sort of enhance all of these different bottom lines, whether that be you know, human wealth, health, and society, uh, and also uh, environmental outcomes and, uh, and ocean conservation. Well, I, I think the, 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 all of this conversation, which I found absolutely fascinating, by the way, um, leads us back to, uh, to, to One Health. If the smallest microbe in the sea is in, endangered, so are we. And um, the food chain is elegant and complex. Uh, the, the interconnection of life in the sea and life on the land, um, the quality of the, of the air, it all affects all of the species. And we're all, um, it seems trite to say, but we're all quite interdependent. Thank you for, for caring so much about this and about One Health and about the interconnectedness of the species and what we can learn from species that we, um, you know, that aren't in our, in our view all of the time. We look at the ocean and we see the surface and we, most people, unless they've either, either been divers or watched, you know, Jacques Cousteau in his day and all of the, the great, great underwater um, videography that's available today, you know, uh, failed to miss. But uh, you have not. Uh, wish you well. We will follow your progress and um, see uh, both how many diseases you figure out how to cure from uh, compounds you find in the ocean and how many ways you can improve aquaculture so we don't have to deplete 90% of the major species in the ocean and, and actually can enjoy fish without uh, despoiling the environment. So go get them. Well, thanks. You know, and I, I've been a big fan of bio for years. I've been to the conference a couple of times and it's, uh, it's just a really awesome community of, of people. Um, and it's so awesome also to see you taking a, such a forward looking approach here, you know, with with this sort of integrated field of uh, health and medicine and uh, environmental consideration. So so likewise. All right. It is the way. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice or even better. If you learned something useful today please share a link to the IMBIOPod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of Heroes in Lab Coats, please visit imbio.org. On our next episode, we're going to meet an entrepreneur who started a cutting-edge biotech company at the tender age of 28. He's not only working on answers to COVID, he's working on an entire new approach to biotechnology that could cure countless diseases, while dramatically lowering the cost of drug development. He'll talk about doing things differently. And he'll tell you about his wife's courageous decision. She's a Manhattan respiratory doctor, and she made a painful sacrifice for public health just weeks after giving birth to the couple's first child. Hear the incredible story of Roy Vance Sciences CEO Vivek Ramaswamy on next Monday's edition of I Am Bio.